Open your Bibles to Genesis 48. If you are using the Pew Bible this morning, we will be on page 43. And as always, we will make some time for Q&R at the end. So if you have any questions, you can go to slido.com and type in RevCDA in the prompt and ask your questions there. And we'll take a look at them at the end this morning. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we are um, gathered in this place as your people, uh, one of many outposts of your kingdom throughout this city, um, one of thousands in this country, one of hundreds of thousands, maybe millions in the world, gathering together on the Lord's day to celebrate your son. God, I pray that we would um, understand the heart of Jesus a little bit better today that we would find our identity in who he is, that we would seek to be men and women whose character is shaped uh, by Christ in us. And God, open up your word. Speak through this text that's, that's so far removed from us, that's so distant in time and culture. Help us to learn from it. Help us understand what it says, what it means, and how we can glean from it and what your spirit is speaking to, to us through it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark, do I need to move this? Is it okay? Just got, got a little walking, okay. Uh, so in uh, 2021, in January, uh, many of you may remember we had a ridiculous windstorm. And the next day in the paper, there was this picture, and it's kind of hard to see on that wall, but that's someone's bed with a tree coming through their ceiling, landing in the middle of the bed. The husband and wife, fortunately, were not spooning that night, and they were fine, uh, but they were woken up to that. And I was, I was thinking about this, thinking about like what, what goes through your mind when you hear this amazing crash and this piece of wood comes through your ceiling and lands in your bed inches from your body. If you're a normal person, I, I think you probably begin to reflect on your own mortality, right? You think about death a little bit. We live in a time in history, everybody says, you know, everything's so bad, which, I mean, I get it, but where, where the threat of immediate death is very, very low. Back in um, the 1500s, John Calvin said, Innumerable are the ills which beset human life and present death in as many different forms. Not to go beyond ourselves, since the body is a receptacle, even the nurse of a thousand diseases. A man cannot move without carrying along with him many forms of destruction. Then, in what direction soever you turn, all surrounding objects may not only do harm, but almost openly threaten and seem to present immediate death. 
Go on board a ship, you are but a plank's breadth from death. Mount a horse, the stumbling of a foot endangers your life. Walk along the streets, every tile upon the roofs is a source of danger. I say nothing of poison, treachery, robbery, some of which besets us at home, others follow us abroad. John Calvin's a little melodramatic there. But he's not wrong, is he? Death can come for any of us at any time. Eugene Peterson, in one of his his books on pastoral ministry, says, for centuries it was the pastor's defined task to prepare people for a good death. I hope that's why you all came to church this morning. (laughs) Jacob's about to die. And I think we can learn some things about the kind of people that God wants us to be as we approach our death through this story. And it turns out that this preparation for death is actually just preparation for a good life, a life centered on Christ. I want to take a look at four aspects of who Jacob turns out to be on his deathbed. Uh, that we can all look to model as we prepare for our own death one day. We're going to see that Jacob is going to die with God's story on his heart. We're going to see that he's going to die honoring those who can't honor themselves. He will die acting from a posture of grace, and he will die taking responsibility for more than his fair share. And maybe for some of you, maybe you feel like you're close to death. You're, you're of an age where maybe some of your peers that you grew up with, they're dying. Maybe you're older than your parents were when they died. So this message this morning is definitely for you. But maybe you're young. Maybe you're in your teens, your 20s, your 30s. Your whole life is before you. Maybe you're ignoring John Calvin's warning about being killed by wayward roofing tiles. This is still a message for you. C.S. Lewis says, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. Each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. What Lewis is saying is that the choices you make today are shaping you into the kind of person that you will be when you die. The younger you are today, the more opportunity you have to bend your character towards holiness, goodness, and love in Christ. Because the older that you get, the harder it becomes. So this word is for all of us this morning. And the first thing we see is that Jacob, as he approaches death, he has God's story on his heart. In the first four verses of this section in Genesis 48, we see that Joseph comes to his father as he's dying with his sons. And Jacob looks at Joseph and says, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. He said to me, I will make you fruitful and numerous. I will make many nations come from you. I will make this land as a permanent possession to your future descendants. They have this meeting at the cusp of Jacob's final hours. And the first thing that Jacob says, I want to talk about God's faithfulness. I want to tell you about God's promises, God's plans. I want to remind you of the purpose that God has for my life and our family. We know that God's story for him is on his heart because that's what comes out of his mouth. 
Not how weak he is, not how it hurts to sit up in bed, not how hard it is to be sick or ill, but hey, let me tell you one more time how much God loves us. Turns out the things that we bring to a conversation are a window into our souls. And this is something for all of us to pay attention to in our own life. I've, it's super funny to me. I've, we've been working with um, uh, the process of sending my oldest daughter, Karis, to college. And she's going to a private Christian college, and it's, it's really expensive, and we don't know how we're going to pay for it. And we just kind of are moving forward, trusting the Lord. But I've had this conversation with many people as we, we just talk about, like, what's going on in your life? And I've kind of poured out my heart of, of you know, just um, really excited for Karis, but also just kind of scared about, like, money and not knowing what to do about it. And so many people have been like, well, she should get a bunch of loans because Biden will just forgive him. <laughs> like, okay, <laughs> where did that come from? You know, I have conversations with other people. I'll say something like, hey, you know, Coeur d'Alene is such a beautiful city to live in. Not if Trump gets reelected. <laughs> All right. What, that just kind of comes out. Why does that come out? Well, because that's what you're thinking about. That's what's in your heart. And it doesn't matter what the subject is, we're going to twist it to be about the thing that we want to talk about. A friend of mine, whenever we get together, does whatever it takes to turn the conversation about whatever new electric guitar he just bought. That's, that's his thing. That's what he wants to talk about. And we could be talking about literally anything, and he will figure out how to get it to that part of the conversation. And those things that come out of our mouths, they, they don't necessarily have to be bad things in and of themselves, but the question for us is, why did we make that choice in that moment to go that direction with the conversation? Why did we choose to bring that thing up? I used to get really bothered by people who talked about Jesus all the time. It used to annoy me. You know those people at church, you know, you, you talk about anything and, and they just say like, you know, well, God is good. He's so faithful. He's going to take care of you through that. And you just go, I don't want to hear that. That's, you're so annoying. I want, to, I want to complain. I need somebody to help me complain. And sometimes people do that to put on a show in church. Sometimes it's a mask. Sometimes it's fake. But I've come to realize, like, I want God and his story of love for me and other people to be the way that I see the world. I want that to be the lens by which I look at reality. And I want that to come out of my mouth, just naturally. And Jacob, at the end of his life, after all of the things that has happened to him, his character has been shaped so that in this moment of pain and weakness, maybe fear, I don't care who you are, death is scary. His heart is fixed on his savior and those are the things that come out in his speech. The second thing I want to look at this morning is, is that Jacob gets ready to die by honoring those that can't honor themselves. In verse 5, we read that Jacob decides to adopt Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And what we see here is an official formal adoption ceremony where, where these two boys become the legal sons of Jacob. 
And there's a couple reasons for this. One is that it's, it's a way of giving Joseph kind of a double portion of the inheritance. We've talked about how this works several times, that, that all the sons in a family would get an equal portion of their father's estate, except for the oldest son that would get a double portion. So if there are, let's say, four sons, the estate gets cut up into five pieces, and the oldest son gets two of those pieces. And in a sense, you could be seeing Joseph getting this double portion. He and it's kind of confusing because the way being the firstborn at this point in the story shakes out is a little fuzzy. Next week, we're going to see how Judah is actually positioned as the firstborn, the promise of, of the, the Messiah, the one that's going to fix all the problems of the world. They're, they're going to, he's going to come through Judah's line. But in another sense, Reuben is the firstborn son, Leah's son, Reuben, and he loses his position due to his sin with Jacob's wife, Bilhah, back in chapter 35. And so then the title of firstborn then moves to the firstborn of Jacob's second full wife, which is Rachel, and this is Joseph. And so you can kind of figure out how this works, but there's something else going on here. And it's clear because it's the reason that Jacob gives for adopting the boys. It's because Rachel died. Bill Arnold writes in his commentary in Genesis, he says, Jacob supports his declaration of adoption by referring to Rachel's untimely death. The implication is that his favored wife gave birth to only two sons before her death, and so her grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, will count as hers. The greatest honor a woman could have in this culture would be to provide many children for her family. And Rachel only had two And the birth of the second child was the cause of her death. And so what is happening here is it's like Jacob is saying, not only will these boys be mine, they will be Rachel's. So what does Jacob get from this action at the end of his life? He doesn't get anything. This is simply an act of kindness towards the legacy of the woman he loved. To think about our lives, how often do we make decisions to show kindness to others that have no way to repay our kindness? In in Luke 14, Jesus says, he also said to the one who had invited him to this dinner he's at, when you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors because they might invite you back and you would be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, or blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. We tend to offer kindness in kind of a strategic way. I will do this for you, and then you'll owe me. Even if we don't think that way ourselves, it's kind of baked into our culture. Do you ever feel like this? Like, oh, we did dinner at their place, so we really should invite them over to our place to make it fair. And there's this like tension over your relationship. We went to, a, me and Joanna went to a, a concert with some friends a couple, a couple about a month ago. And uh, it, was, it was his birthday, so I bought the concert tickets, and then we settled on this place for dinner that we had a gift certificate to. Um, and so we covered the cost of dinner too, and at that point before the concert, like, you could just tell, like, they were, like, on edge about it. Like, they were grateful, but there was just, there was just a little bit of energy of, like, oh, man, I'm in his debt now. And I didn't feel that way, but, but after the opening act was over, uh, my buddy was like, hey, can I go get drinks for us? 
And I just knew he needed to buy me something in order to feel good about himself. I was like, yeah, sure, that's fine. This is just kind of how we live. Everything is a quid pro quo, right? And Jesus says, if you have means, be on the lookout for people who have no way of paying you back and be generous towards them. As Jacob prepares to die, he goes out of his way to bring honor to this person that he loves that can't do anything to pay him back. Thirdly, we see Joseph or Jacob acting from a posture of grace. After this adoption ceremony is over, beginning in verse 13, we see that Jacob is going to bless these boys. Joseph took them both with his right hand, Ephraim toward Israel's left, and with his left hand, Manasseh toward Israel's right, and brought them to Israel. But Israel stretched out his hand and put, out on the, put it on the head of Ephraim, the younger, and crossing his hands, put his left on Manasseh's head, although Manasseh was the firstborn. So Joseph is ready for Jacob to give his two sons, who are now officially his father's sons, a blessing. And Jacob can't see very well, so Joseph positions the boys, who are actually probably about 20 years old at this point, with the oldest one on his left, and the, which is Jacob's right, and the younger one on his right, which is Jacob's left. Jacob's right-hand blessing would be the greater blessing is going to go to the oldest son. But then Jacob crosses his arms in front of these boys and blesses the younger with his right-hand blessing. And I love this line, Joseph thought it was a mistake. <laughs> Dad, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> like, like, I know. I'm, I'm, you think that's a mistake, Riley? You, you accidentally, very bizarrely crossed your arms before you blessed them. You need to do it over. And what's really funny here is that Joseph, who is one of the youngest in his family, is being blessed above his position, but he can't understand why his own sons would be blessed in that way. We, see, we receive grace, unearned favor, and we somehow come to terms with it. Others receive grace, and we go, that's not right. That's not fair. And oftentimes, this idea of fairness ends up paralyzing us and preventing us from doing what is right. One of the things that I appreciate learning from Andy Stanley was this. He wrote in one book, read the Gospels, and you will have a difficult time finding even one example of Jesus being fair. He chose 12 apostles from among hundreds of disciples. He gave preferential treatment to three of the 12. He didn't heal everyone. He didn't feed every hungry crowd. He ensured that strangers would live and allowed Lazarus to die. And this is the nature of grace. Grace is a gift that you don't deserve. Ephraim didn't do anything to get picked to be blessed by Jacob's right hand. Jacob just understood that this is how God was going to do it. Jacob is operating kind of like a prophet at this point. We'll see more of that next week as he kind of predicts the future of his sons. But Jacob just sees that both are going to be blessed, but Ephraim is going to be greater. Why? Grace. How often do you think for yourself, if I do this for this person, I will have to do it for everyone? Did you bring enough for the whole class? 
right? We get this drilled into us. But this is not what God is like. God is abundantly gracious to people who don't deserve it. And sometimes we don't understand why some things go to the some people and other things go to other people. But it's part of God's goodness and his glory to do the thing that he wants. A.W. Tozer says, I have said over and over again that one of the biggest problems of the church is the loss of the proper concept of what God is like. And Dane Ortland says something similar. The Christian life from one angle is of the long journey of letting our natural assumption about who God is over many decades fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. This is what we see in Jacob at the end of his life. At the beginning of his life, Jacob is selfish. Jacob goes after things that do not belong to him. He connives and he steals and he manipulates to get what he thinks he deserves. And by the end of the life, his life, he has experienced who God truly is. His undeserved favor has been poured out on Jacob. And so he freely pours it out on others. We have this, um, this sign over here, this, this kind of aspirational sign that says we are becoming people who do these things. And, and these are all things that we're terrible at, <laughs> but, but we're working on it. If you're wondering, these are all things that are true about us as Christians. But one of that first thing says live in communion with God. If you're a Christian here this morning, you are in Christ. Christ is in you. You are connected to God and you have the opportunity to be transformed into the kind of person that more and more reflects what God is actually like. This is the constant drumbeat of the New Testament. Paul says in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Jacob is getting ready to die and he has lived 147 years slowly being transformed into a man that operates out of a posture of grace because that's the God that he has learned to worship. And fourthly this morning, Jacob ends his life uh, by taking responsibility for more than his fair share. In verse 21, Israel said to Joseph, look, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you back to the land of your fathers. Over and above what I am giving your brothers, I am giving you the one mountain slope that I took from the Amorites with my sword and bow. These last couple of verses have some really difficult Hebrew in them. Jacob tells Joseph that he is giving him a piece of land and encourages him that God will bring him back to it. It's, it's Jacob's hope that we're not going to be in Egypt forever. We're going to go back to the land that God promised us. And scholars are divided on where that land is. The word for mountain slope in, in, in the Christian standard version of the Bible is actually the word Shechem. If you remember Dinah, uh, Dinah is raped in chapter 34 in the city of Shechem. And Levi and Simeon, they go and they kill all the men of that town in retaliation. But it, when this happens, Jacob is furious. He doesn't take part in it and, and he, 
He despises his sons for it. In the next chapter, you're going to see Simeon and Levi actually cursed because of their violence. But if this land that Jacob is referring to in our chapter this morning is actually Shechem, this passage makes it sound like Jacob attacked this city and took it. We get a little more clarity, though, in Joshua, the very end of the book of Joshua, chapter 24. We read that Joseph's bones, which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt, were buried at Shechem in the parcel of land Jacob had purchased from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of silver. It was an inheritance for Joseph's descendants. So Joshua, Joshua clarifies that, yeah, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about this city, Shechem. Jacob bought some land there, and then there was this kind of uh, arrangement between their families that resulted in, in Dinah's being raped, and then Levi and Simeon killed everyone in the town, and then they actually left Shechem because they thought they were going to be attacked by the other villages. This verse in Joshua leaves out that part, but it does indicate that this is the place that Jacob is talking about when he says that he took it from the Amorites with his sword and his bow. So what's going on here? I think Jacob is taking on more responsibility than is due him. I think he is bearing the burden of his son's actions. Matthew Henry in his commentary here says, sordid or vile spirits care not how much others suffer for their faults, while generous spirits can be content to suffer for the faults of others. Generous spirits can be content to suffer for the faults of others. How does that sit with you? To bring out another like, that's not fair. I don't like that. I was talking with, with Jackson this week about... Um, what it's like to be a waiter and um, how you can be really nice to your customers and get them their water on time and do their refills. But if the kitchen is not doing their job, who doesn't get tipped? The waiter, Jackson, doesn't get tipped. <laughs> yeah, like to, the, to bear the consequences of the faults of others. And I think this is really interesting here. And again, Jacob doesn't ignore what's happened again in the next chapter. Simeon and Levi are going to be reprimanded and cursed because of their wickedness and their violence. But in this moment, Jacob is saying, you know what, it's actually my responsibility here to accept the blame for this act of wickedness that was done to these people. And it's opportunities like this that are choices that God allows us to make which grow the influence of the life of Christ in us. It's not typically the big decisions that make a godly life, it's the little ones. I like this, this quote by Dallas Willard. He says, we need to realize that the less sensational entanglements of ordinary lives, perhaps Christian lives, are precisely what keep well-intentioned people from following Christ into the depths and heights of spiritual transformation. And I don't know what for you, maybe something's coming to mind, some injustice that's been done that, that you don't have to take responsibility for but God might be asking you to take responsibility for. 
maybe more responsibility than is your due. But these are the kind of small things, the small choices that we can make throughout our lives that shift our hearts to be more like Jesus. Because ultimately, after 170, 47 years, Jacob's character has been transformed into the sort of man which is a lesser picture of the character of Christ. As we wrap up this morning, I want to point that out. Jesus dies with God's story on his heart. Luke 23, when they arrived at the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and on the le- one on the left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. In the midst of excruciating pain, humiliation, fear, all the worst things a human being can experience, what bubbles up from the heart of Jesus to his lips? Forgiveness. God's heart for people. I think it's pretty clear for all of us that what's in our heart comes out when we stub our toe, right? Moment of, of pain, We lose control over whatever filter we have that keeps us respectable. How much more do we see what's in Jesus' heart, though, when he's being tortured and executed? What opportunities would he have had in the midst of that to bring out anything from the depths of his heart that was there? And I think that's what is in the depths of his heart. God, you love these people these people that are killing me. Jesus' love for his murderers is what pours out of his heart when he dies. Jesus dies honoring others who can't honor themselves. In John 19, we see that when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved, which is John's code word for himself, standing there, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. Then he said to his disciple, here is your mother, And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Jesus, in the midst of the worst moments of his life, takes time to arrange for the care of his mother. And this is one of those things like, if this wasn't in the Bible, no one would think anything of it. Like nobody would be like, I can't believe Jesus died and didn't make arrangements to care for his mom. We just would have never come up. But John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes it down. He gives us a window into Jesus' heart that even at the worst moments of his life, he is looking for ways to care for and dignify others who can't pay him back. Jesus dies acting from a posture of grace and he takes responsibility for more than his share. These two go together and are pretty self-evident. Jesus' death on the cross was a gift of grace. It wasn't fair. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. Paul writes in 2 Timothy, he has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. He didn't have a part to play in our sin. Jesus is blameless, perfect, holy, totally good and pure, and yet he identifies with our sin. He took it upon himself. He took responsibility for it, and he bore it for us on the cross. Peter says it this way in his first letter, he did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. 
When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So as, as we close this morning, just the question, how, how should we prepare for a good death? Whether that death is, is a long way off or it's something unexpected that's going to happen very soon. By filling our hearts and our minds with the gospel. By letting the spirit of Christ in us transform our minds and emotions and wills to be people that reflect his goodness. To recognize that God has saved us for a purpose and that he's molding our character for that purpose so that when it comes to be our time to die, the work that he intended to do in us through this life will have been completed. Not because we deserved it or earned it, but because God in his grace has given it to us and shaped us by his spirit into someone with the character of Christ. Let's do some questions. How is it that Joseph did not have a say in whether his sons or not his sons get adopted? Shouldn't Jacob have at least said, please? <laughs> yeah, that's not how it worked back then. When you're the patriarch, you do what you want. <laughs> Joseph uh, is still subordinate to his father until he dies. And so ultimately Jacob gets to do what he wants. It's not a generous spirit evidence of the working of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. It is not something we can achieve on our own. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's the, that's the reality of our uh, walk with Jesus, right? That we are saved by God's grace, by the initiative that he has, that he takes, by the work that he does. We are invited into a family that he creates. And then he gives us what we need to live out the life that he wants for us. That doesn't mean that we are without a will any longer, but it does mean that our will is being shaped and transformed to be people that are like him. And so, yeah, there is no way to be shaped into the character of Christ without Christ. Assuming the less sensational entanglements is referring to the business life throws at us, how do we stay intentional about our call? This is a good question. This is referring back up to that Dallas Willard quote. Um, they're all good questions. That was, that was mean. <laughs> Uh, this is, uh, let's see. We need to realize that the less sensational entanglements of ordinary lives, perhaps Christian lives, are precisely what keep well-intentioned people from following Christ in the depths and heights of spiritual transformation. One thing that I have begun to learn about following Jesus is that the lofty, crazy language, if you're somebody that reads the New Testament, if you, if you spend time in the epistles of Paul and Peter and John and just, and, and they say these crazy things about knowing Christ and the depth and the height and the breadth and the width and, and just being saturated in the knowledge of God and walking in the spirit. And, and you just think like, man, I don't, I don't know what that means. I think it's because there is a kind 
of Christian life that we have told ourselves doesn't exist. And it's because it's hard. It's because it takes self-denial. It's because our culture is built in such a way that it intends to keep us away from actually attaining it. And I think Christians throughout the centuries have recognized this. This was the kind of beginning of the monastic communities way back in like the third century where they realized, man, I'm having a really hard time following Jesus. I should just leave everyone and do it by myself in the desert. I wouldn't recommend that. But the impulse that society is actively working against me in my progress in holiness, that's real. And we have to ask ourselves the question, do the things that I just assume to be true about the way life works, is that really true? Or is that something that's getting in the way of following Jesus more deeply? You know, we'll, we'll, we'll be often um, confronted with an opportunity to step deeper into a relationship with Christ and we'll have some, well, yeah, but my job. Or yeah, but my kids' sports, or yeah, but my, my school plans, or yeah, but this. And I don't want to say that all of those things are bad excuses necessarily, but they might be. But we've grown up in a culture that, that puts our faith, we were talking about this yesterday with all the community group leaders, we put our experience of Jesus, our faith in this little piece of the pie of our lives instead of realizing that it's the whole pie and everything else is subservient to it. And so the less sensational entanglements, this is not, you know, addicted to meth, right? That's a problem. But most of us aren't there. We're addicted to busyness or addicted to TV or addicted to whatever pastime or hobby we have. But these are all things that our culture has rubber stamped as being normal and good and fine. And so I think the question for us as we go, I want to be more like Jesus. Okay, what are the normal everyday things that aren't sinful, but are still getting in the way of that, that you personally need to do something with? Last question. Do you think the crossing of hands to bless the secondborn as the first was related in any way to Jacob's own receiving the blessing of the firstborn? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't think Jacob is just like, well, this is what happened to me, so I'm going to do it again. I, I think he's hearing from the Lord here. I think he's working prophetically because this is actually what happens. Ephraim becomes a greater tribe in Israel's history. But I think it's a pattern that God shows up over and over and over again to pick the one that is unexpected, to walk in his grace and say, the underdog is the one that I'm gonna to choose to do this thing. And I think Jacob's keying into that. I think he is sensitive enough to the character of God and God's spirit working within him that he recognizes like, this is the way God is gonna do it in this circumstance. And it's gonna be in line with his character and his graciousness. We're going to take communion this morning. And the communion meal is a reminder of Jesus' death, his broken body and his shed blood. But it is also a reminder that Jesus has conquered death. When he institutes 
the communion meal, he tells his disciples that he's not going to drink from the cup again until he does it in the kingdom with his people. Just like Jacob says, hey, one day we're going to get out of Egypt and go back to the promised land. Jesus says, hey, this isn't the last time we're going to celebrate together. We're going to be together again when I come in my kingdom. Because Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. Death couldn't hold him. And because of that, he will return one day and bring his kingdom with him and celebrate together with his people. And in the meantime, we are being prepared to enter that kingdom, either through our own individual death one day or at his return all at once. And either way, that's good news for us. And I hope that you would see your life your days, your circumstances as preparation for the day of your death and your arrival in the kingdom of God. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, the invitation by his grace to you is that you can be a part of the kingdom. You've been invited into that kingdom. You can have your death superseded by his life. And just like we sang, you can live forever with him. That's what's on offer today. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.